Good morning to everybody, and uh, this is our fourth week into the Apostles' Creed. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I know you all have heard this expression before. It's this expression that says, the customer is always right. You've heard this before, yes? The customer is always right. Uh, this phrase I learned, you know, I did some quick Googling. It was coined by Harry Gordon Selfridge. Harry Gordon Selfridge in 1909. There have been other variations of this phrase, but uh, he's largely the one that receives credit for it. But Harry, uh, he was commonly given credit because he owned a store, a, a series of stores. Uh, and, and so he would use this phrase as a means of educating his, his employees and persuade his employees to provide high-quality service. In other words, he didn't want his, his customers to argue uh, with, he didn't want his employers to, uh, employees to argue with the customers, because generally speaking, it wasn't worth the bickering between customers, uh, you know, who are just wanting to get a good value for their hard-earned money, and so rather than bicker with every little problem, just let them, let them have it, and you, you lose a little bit along the way, but it gains a great deal of, of, uh, of customer trust along the way, and so that's where that phrase sort of came, just, just the customer's always right. Just put that in your mind, the customer's always right, but do you see what's inherently wrong with that phrase? It's not true, <laughs> right? It's a lie. The customer isn't always right. Sometimes the customer is wrong, right? And, and, uh, and, and the ones who are wrong have just decided, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put up with you just for the sake of good customer service. Even though you're wrong, we're just going to say you're right. And so it always eats at me a little bit when I hear that phrase, the customer is always right, especially uh, when I'm with my family sometimes, because uh, sometimes there are certain members in my family that insist upon good customer service, right? Uh, sometimes unreasonable customer service. Uh, but again, they're given the choice, hey, for instance, if you go out to eat somewhere, you can, you can order your food any way you want because you know why? Customer is always right. We are here for you. But what if they're wrong? What if they're wrong? Let me give you an example. Uh, one of my least favorite things to do is, is uh, if, for instance, I'm on the way home from, from work uh, and my mom says, hey, or my mom, my wife says, uh, hey, wasn't able to get anything ready for dinner. Can you go and pick up some, okay, any number of things? The one that I hate the most is sandwiches. Can you go pick up some sandwiches on the way home? Think Jersey Mike's, think uh, uh, Jimmy John's, Subway. You know why? Just too many options, way too many options, okay? And, and to remember that, oh, you like mayonnaise on both sides of the bun, and you like uh, no tomato, oh, you want the, the, the salt but not the pepper. It's just way too many things, way too many things that can go wrong, okay? Just to give you an example, okay, my... My son, one of my sons, uh, he, the sandwich that he likes is uh, pepperoni, bacon, lettuce, and mustard. Pepperoni, bacon, lettuce, mustard. Gross. <laughs> All those things are fine independently, but you mix them together, I'm like, that is not a sandwich. And, and again, when, when you go to order that sandwich, th there's a side of me, and I, I'm, sometimes I'm with him, and he orders that. I, I want the person behind the counter to say, no, that's wrong. We don't have a pepperoni bacon mustard sandwich. There's, it's not on the board up here. And in fact, when you try and order online, sometimes you'll try and order online, 
to build a pepperoni bacon mustard sandwich from the already given choices that they have. You know, they have club sandwiches, right? They have Italian sandwiches. There's no pepperoni bacon mustard option. So to, you have to deconstruct a sandwich to get to the point that you're at a pepperoni bacon mustard sandwich. And most of the time, they will not get it right. There's always something wrong. You know why? Because it's an unreasonable request. <laughs> and they've told them, we'll do it your way, right? Anyway, I'm ranting now, and this doesn't have a lot to do with what we're talking about. I just, <laughs> but it is nice to have choices. That's where I was going with this. It's nice to have choices, isn't it? It's great to have choices until you realize that you really don't have the choice you thought you were going to have, you know, or the thing that you were, you were going to choose is just not the right thing, okay? Now, here's, here's how I can tie this into what we're talking about today. We often characterize, we often characterize our entry into the Christian faith as a choice, okay? I'm not going where you probably think I'm going with this. We often characterize it as a choice. I, I grew up in a church whereby every single week listed on the bulletin, right after the sermon was the entry, invitation, right? Invitation. The suggestion there is that, that we're being invited to make a choice. You can come down to the front, you can ask Jesus in your life, or you can remain there in your chair and just stay where you are. You can choose Jesus or not choose Jesus, or perhaps choose something else besides Jesus. And honestly, I think we do this in Christian circles because we, we don't want to appear pushy. I think that's our intent behind it. We don't want to be pushy. So we, so we soften it a bit by characterizing it as a choice to ask Jesus into your life because the customer is always right. See, it's even creeped into our church a little bit, or not this church, but the church in general. So let me start off by asking you this. What does that mean? I know you've heard the expression before, uh, when you ask Jesus into your life, into your heart, what exactly are you asking him to do? What, what do you suppose the sentiment behind the invitation is? What are you asking Jesus to do specifically when you ask him to come into your life? What do you say? What are you asking him to do? Lord of your life. To be the Lord of your life. Okay, even that, I feel like that still needs a little bit of unpacking too, right? What are we asking Jesus to do when you ask Jesus into your so I would say uh, there's a throne in your life, and pre-Jesus, you sit on that throne, and you're asking Jesus, will you sit on the throne of my life, which means you own every aspect of my life. So it's a total surrender. You're saying, Jesus, uh, this, is, this is what, I mean, look, I love these name tags just because I was about to call you Craig, but it's Greg. <laughs> Greg was saying that in everyone's life, there is a throne. Oh, you heard it. You have the microphone. That's why you heard what he said, but yes, excellent. Thanks. I would say to make us more like him. To sanctify us. An invitation to say, Lord, make me more like you. Help me die to my sin and live unto righteousness. That's how the, the shorter catechism phrases it. Did you say something, Ellie? Salvation. Asking him to come in and save you. Salvation. All these are good answers. And I would, you know, none of them I would categorize as wrong. Of course not. These are all good things. These are sort of things that we've picked up along the way throughout our, our Christian journey, okay? Anything else anyone wants to add? Someone, something else? Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> it is a surrender, too. It is a, it's a surrender. It's, saying, it's, it's basically saying, you know, what, what, what Greg said. I, I thought I was in control, but I'm asking you to be the one in control. Let me follow you rather than you try and follow me, okay? Now, uh, Again, we've talked about these things before in this class. If you've been in this class for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about these things, but it doesn't hurt to have a, a bit of a refresher. Okay, it's not, it's not just a choice that we make to invite Jesus into our life and save, save us from sin, 
but as I heard you express a number of times, it's an invitation, don't just save me, but make yourself Lord of my life. I want you to be Lord of my life, okay? Uh, I want you to be, it's, it's not an election, right? Jesus isn't running for office. Uh, you are the king, and it's acknowledgement of that. So this is the next line in our Apostles' Creed that, creed that we're going to look at today. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Within this line, we are confessing our belief in Jesus as the Son of God, who is our Lord. Now, I want to look at three things from this statement today. There's three things packed into this one, uh, one little uh, clause here. We're going to break it up like this. Uh, Jesus Christ, I have, no, I don't have a slide for that. Uh, Jesus Christ is the first thing we're going to look at. Uh, actually, the third, I'm going to take these backwards. Jesus Christ, Son of God, and Lord. We're going to contemplate those three things. Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Lord. Okay, what are we confessing in each of those? Because what we started off considering was the notion of, of Jesus' lordship in our lives, that that comes by way of choice. But what I want us to look at is the way the Apostle Paul classifies it in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. I will put it up here, verse 29 and following, so you can follow along with me up here. But here's the context of what's going on here. Paul is standing in Athens in the midst of the Aragopagus, which is known as Mars Hill. Some of you have heard of Mars Hill. Uh, this, which is not the church out in Arizona. This was, there was a Mars Hill long before, is it Arizona? I can't remember where it is. Oh yeah, it's somewhere out west, okay. Uh, this, this was an outdoor courtroom of sorts, uh, uh, which was the highest court in Greece, uh, Greece for civil, criminal, and religious matters. So even under Roman rule in the time of the New Testament, Mars Hill remained an important meeting place where philosophy and religion and all kinds of things and law were, were discussed. And here in his sermon, Paul is making this gospel presentation during his, this would have been his uh, second missionary journey. And here he's specifically addressing the religious idolatry of the Greeks, and he's says to them, this is Acts 17, 29 and following, being then God's offspring, uh, and you think of that as, uh, as just a, that the image bearers that we are, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's telling the Athenians, don't think of Jesus in the manner that you think of your, your idols that, that come from the imagination of man. You know, God has been patient, long-suffering uh, with, with the people of the world uh, over the ages, and, and in times past, he's overlooked these things. But now, something has changed. He's alerting us that something has changed. Those days are over. Now what's he doing? God is commanding commanding all men everywhere to repent. Do you see what's going on? In terms of our notion of invitation, what he's saying here is it's not an invitation. It's a, a command. He's saying to the Athenians, this is, this is not a choice to serve this God or, or that one, but an obligation an obligation imposed by God himself. Bow before the Son of God, whom he has declared to be Lord. Do you see what he's doing here? Paul is telling you, I, I, I'm not going to custom make a sub for you. <laughs> I'm not going to make you a pepperoni bacon, bacon uh, uh, mustard sandwich. Your choices are, well, you don't have a choice. 
You don't have a choice. God isn't running for office. Your options have been filtered down to one, and now it is your obligation to serve him. And again, we, we don't often want to present the gospel that way because for whatever reason, it doesn't come across as, as hospitable or winsome or whatever the word you might think of, think of it is. But, but if you get down to the reality of what the text is saying, the text is saying he's, he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. What choice do you have? What, what's, your, what's your alternative? Okay? Uh, and so when we we, we, we think, again, we, we, we tend to classify it as, 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 as more choice than it is obligation, okay? Uh, when we first moved into our house 17 years ago, there was a, uh, a cement pad that was just adjacent to our garage. And uh, this was the first time that my wife or I ever owned a home some 17, 18 years ago. Uh, and so we, we tend to think, well, this is our home. We can do with it what we want, right? We can do whatever we want with it. If we wanted to paint the walls purple, we could paint the walls purple. If we wanted to cover the floors with shag carpeting, remember the shag carpeting? We could do that if we wanted to. We could do any of that. It was our home. So that cement patio that was adjacent to the garage, I decided, that since it was my house, that I wanted to cover that cement patio with, with a roof. And, uh, and you know what? Why stop there? Let's go ahead and put walls around it too and a door. And now I have this nice shed uh, that is for the lawnmower tools and everything. That way the garage can be a garage for vehicles and the shed would have uh, all those things. I got it. Let's do it. So I started to do that, put a roof, uh, hired some people to help me out. So it was, it was great. You know, it was starting to work out great. Then right around the time that I was putting up the walls, someone came knocking on my door. Their message was short and sweet. They simply said, hey, you can't do that. Uh, what do you mean I can't do that? Uh, and who are you to tell me what I can't do to my house? And he said, well, it's not me that's going to stand in your way. To make a long story short, I was doing two things wrong. Number one, I had not pulled a building permit. What's a building permit? I'm a first-time homeowner. Uh, I was effectively creating an addition to my home, and to do that, you need a building permit to do that. Strike one. Strike two was that I had not checked anything out with the uh, homeowners association. Some of them, some people consider this a demonic uh, organization right? that would like to get into your business, and they got into mine. They said, you, you didn't ask us if you could do that. It's my home. But it isn't. <laughs> you know? uh, so, so strike two. Again, I've not checked anything out with the HOA. So when my friendly neighbor came by and said, hey, you can't do that, my response back to them was, says who? Okay? Says who? I was offended. You know, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. So basically, this is the response that Paul has to the Athenians. Paul tells them that they are obliged to worship the one true God, and they respond with, says who? It's my choice, Paul. I can worship whomever I want to. No, you can't. No, you can't. So back to Acts chapter 17, 31 and following. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed it. This is why. Again, the same way the HOA told me that here's, here's what's going to happen if you keep going this way. And the city said the same thing. If you keep doing this, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to end pretty, okay? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Oh my goodness, there's so much here. So what Paul is saying is, is, you're, is you're, you're not obligated to repent simply because I say so. 
I'm just the neighbor knocking on the door right now. You're obligated to repent because God says so. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And if you're part of the world, which you are, uh, you will fall underneath that judgment too. He's fixed a day on which every careless word, every thoughtless act will be judged. And every person is subject to this judgment. And he's appointed a judge who who will preside over this judgment. uh, And it's Jesus Christ. Okay, so now imagine you're one of these Athenians, and you're listening to Paul, and he's telling you to repent. Again, not an invitation, this is a command. And so you ask Paul says who, and Paul expresses to you that that God says so, because he's appointed a judge who will judge all humanity. And if you're an Athenian, your next question might be, well, what gives him the right? Who's Jesus? You know, because maybe we can all agree that there's some supreme being out there, but who says that Jesus is really the guy? Because again, as an Athenian, uh, I, I may be thinking of, well, there's any number of gods. could be any number of powers out there. But Paul is saying, nope, it's Jesus. There's one. There's one judge. One judge. And so if you're an Athenian, you're thinking, uh, says who? Okay, and so this is yet another thing the confession tells us. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. His only son. We have, we have to comp- contemplate and understand what this means. You know, if, if we believe in Jesus as his only son, how, how might we answer the Athenians here? What gives Jesus the right to serve as judge? Again, shouldn't be a terrible stretch to convince them that there's a, a supreme being out there. Why Jesus? Of all the choices out there, why are you saying Jesus? And again, not really a choice, right? Now, we say because he's the son of God. What does that mean? Let, let's talk about that for a second. Son of God. Have you ever contemplated what that means? Jesus is the son of God. Think about that in a, uh, in a modern context, okay? I have a son, his name is Jack. He's my oldest son. What does it mean? What rights and privileges does my son Jack have simply by being my son? What does he have? What does that afford him? What should it afford him? Access to me. He has a, an open invitation, as it were, to come into my midst, <laughs> come into my presence, and what? Talk to me. Ask. Share. (laughs) Ask for money. Ask for a pepperoni sub. Okay, so he wants, what is he asking for here? He's asking for sustenance. He's asking for, he wants me to provide for him. Being my son means that I have an obligation to care for him. To, to, to put a shelter over his head, to put, to put clothes on his back. That's what being my son, it affords him protection. All those things. So at least in this, I have an, and I have an obligation to do these things. Okay, so at least in this stage in Jack's life, the, the metaphor here, just like Paul was talking about this morning in the sermon, it does break down a little bit. I'm Jack's father. I'm Jack's authority. Does Jesus submit to the father? Does the father have authority over Jesus? So a lot of you are saying yes. Anyone say no? Yes and no. It's kind of a trick question, right? You know where I'm going. You've been in my class before. Let me ask it another way. If, if I go tell uh, my son, one, either one of them, uh, go clean your room, okay, what should he do at that point in an ideal world? Stop everything. Go clean your room. That, oh, that is such a pet peeve. You know, if I'm asking you to do something, you, you should do it now, right now. He should clean his room. Why should he clean his room? Uh, because in the immediate sense, because I said so. That's it, right? Enough said. Now, in an ideal world, 
if I tell him go clean his room, why should he go clean his room? Because he wants to honor me, because he loves me, because maybe he sees that his room is dirty and that it needs cleaning. How about that? Imagine that. Hey, this room could use a bit of maintenance. I'm going to clean it, not just because my father told me, but because why? I see the need for it. I see how it fits within the, the whole order of the household. I see the benefit of it, all right? So it's not just because I said so. Now, now, was there ever a conversation between God the Father and God the Son that went something like this? Well, the world needs saving, Jesus, so, so you're going to have to go do it. Why? Because I said so. Did that conversation ever happen? Preposterous. No, of course not. All right, not at all. Bible teachers all over the ages refer to this as the covenant. There was a covenant of redemption, okay? A covenant is a pact or agreement between two or more parties. And in this covenant, the covenant of redemption, this is an agreement between the members of the Trinity and this agreement. And in this agreement, Jesus' part was to undertake the mission of redemption at the benefit, at the behest of the Father. So this wasn't an act of Jesus that he was undertaking because the Father said, because I said so. And again, if you've been in my class for any amount of time at all, you know what verse I'm going to bring up next. Okay, this, this says it all. This sums it up. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. So in other words, in terms of authority structures, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So did the Father have authority over the Son? Well, not if we read that. Equality with God, right, a thing to be grasped, but, here's the uh, hodo part in Greek, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What am I getting at here in terms of authority? How did Jesus see this authority structure? What did he do? Was he equal with the Father? Resounding yes. But, what's the but part? The what? He submitted not my will but thine in the garden would be an example. In other words, did he do it because his father said because I said so or because, again, he saw by his own volition the, the, the order, the need, how it fit within the redemptive act of, 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 uh, of, uh, of salvation, okay? So, though you read words like obedient, which would suggest, you know, inferiority in a lot of our modern contexts. Jesus was equal with God, and he set that equality with God aside. He willingly set it aside and willingly took on the form of a servant. You see, he willingly placed himself under the authority of the Father. So for those of you that said, yes, the Father has authority over him, you're right. But he did so willingly, not because that there was a sense of, well, my dad told me to do it, so I got to do it. No, he saw the need, he saw the order. Within that covenant of redemption, he said, because of this, because we have agreed to do this, I will now place myself under the authority of the Father. My son doesn't really willingly place himself under my authority. It just is that way. He does what I ask him because I'm in charge, right? But this, this is the heartbeat of Christianity. To do something... Not because you have to, but because you willingly, joyfully give yourself to someone else. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Okay? Jesus did what his father asked him because he willingly put himself in a position to do so. Hebrews 12, 2 
tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My son doesn't often go clean his room because of the joy that it brings him. I wish it did. Uh, actually, I, have, I, I'm not, I shouldn't do this, but I am. Uh, I have two boys. One, I almost never have to talk to about cleaning his room because he has found the joy. He has found the joy. And it's so funny that I say this because uh, I think about just, you know, even the way that we look at our offices and how, how a lot of us want it to be nice, neat, and tidy. And there's something that joyful about that. And some of you are like, what? No. Well, my son has found that. He's like, I, I like coming into my, my room and seeing the order. I like seeing he puts LED lights all around his, his ceiling there, and so it lights up, and he's got computer parts and everything, and so, wow, it just looks spectacular, and he takes pride in that. There's joy in that. Whereas my other son, he, he, he hasn't found that yet. And it's a little bit more un, unkempt. Or is that only apply to hair if it's unkempt? Unkept. Can you, can you have, unkempt, have an unkempt room, not just an unkempt? How many of you knew that, that the word for your hair is not unkept, it's unkempt? Be honest. I was 40-something years old when I learned that. <laughs> I thought your hair was just unkept. No, it's unkempt. Anyway, I digress. Okay. Now, but in, uh, again, in terms of position, authority, and godliness, Jesus, the Son, is equal with God. Colossians 1.15. Let's just reiterate this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. You know, God Almighty in an image that your eyeballs can, can set themselves upon, okay? Now, but what does it mean when it says the firstborn of creation? Does that mean that he was the first thing that was born in all of creation? No. That's where is. Carlos isn't in here right now. No, Carlos is busy, but Carlos has a great story. He could tell you about uh, his background where he came. He's on staff with the youth team, and he, uh, he came out of Jehovah's Witness. That, that I grew up in that. And, but this is, this is central to their belief that Jesus was the first created being. Okay? Is that what this is saying? No. No. This means that he is over everything that's been created. It says everything that was created was created through him. So anything that has a beginning had a beginning because of him. Everything that was created had to be created through him. Not, not that he was created, quite the, the contrary. Back in Paul's time, the idea of being a firstborn child, uh, more specifically a firstborn son, carried with it a meaning that was well understood. In most parts of the world at that time, the firstborn got all the wealth, or got the lion's share of the wealth uh, of the father. The firstborn got, got all the wealth, all the status, the, all the standing, power. Uh, the firstborn was, was, in many respects, equal with the father because he would be the one carrying on the name of the father and the obligations and duties that the, that the father had. And that's what Paul is talking about when he calls Jesus the firstborn over all creation. But then he goes on to say this in Colossians 1. This is 1.15 and following. Image of the firstborn God, firstborn in all creation. For by him, again, what is this describing? All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. See, this is why it's so important not to take things out of context when you're starting a cult. Because if you just, <laughs> if you just took verse 15 and, and, then, and you stop it at there and say, look, he was firstborn. But then look at 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in all things, and in all things hold together. 
Okay, so in other words, in a, in a word, who is he? He's God. He's God, unmistakably God. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus is equal with God, both, both here in Philippians 2. The fact that he's the son of God isn't a diminutive title. Okay, in the same way that, for instance, my son, it, it's not uh, diminutive in the sense that it's insulting, but there's, there's, a, there's an inerrant hierarchy there. If he's my son, of course he answers to me. But in, in, uh, not so here. In John chapter 5, when, when Jesus healed the crippled man at the pool at Bethesda, the Jews wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because he did it on the Sabbath. But not only does it say that he did it on the Sabbath, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, another one of these passages that, that there's just no way around that. If you're trying to suggest in your, in your uh, false teaching that Jesus is somehow inferior, no. No, he made himself in no uncertain terms equal with the Father. Okay, so back to the Athenians that Paul was, was telling to repent. By what authority? By the authority of God. Okay, through the Son who has equal power, equal authority, equal glory as God the Father. Any questions at that, that point so far? Any other thoughts, comments, or observations there? In no uncertain terms. You know, it's not that, well, the Son is a little bit lesser. No, he is God. He is Lord. Yeah. Kramer, yeah? Let me get you the microphone real quick. See, this picks you up on the recording, too. That's fun. Uh, I mean, a question that comes to mind is why would God choose to utilize the characterization of a son-father-son relationship? Not saying it's wrong, but why was that the best for us to understand the relationship between Jesus and God? Great question. And again, this is, what, this is why, and I hate to... Uh, to stand on a soapbox up here, but this is why Bible study is really important because, again, if you understand what sonship meant in the first century, it, it does take on a different look than what we think of sonship. And so when, when, when the gospel writers, when, when Paul was talking about sonship, it, it created a specific imagery. And again, th there was so much built into the title of being a son that it communicated really well maybe easier back then than it does now. And so this is why we have to labor to understand this, that what, is it, what does sonship mean? Sonship doesn't just mean you're my offspring, which again is what we would struggle with here if we're looking at this verse for the first, first time. Oh, Jesus is the offspring, son of God. No, sonship in the first century meant way more than offspring. It meant, you know, almost, almost equality because again, everyone understood that their time on earth was finite and that the only way for a name to be carried on uh, without diluting it, as it were, is to have a son who would inherit your position, your status, and carry it on forever. So it takes on, again, the way we say metaphors break down, even that, even that, it's, it's, it's still not perfect, but it gives us in our finite minds a bit better context to understand what, what God is saying when he says son. I'm not just saying offspring. I'm saying all those things that are baked into being a son. And again, and, and, and I want you to understand when uh, when we talk about sonship, some, some people might bristle at that by thinking, well, sons and daughters, yeah, when we're all, we're all sons of God now, as, as, as it were. Well, why can't we say daughters? Because again, of what it meant back then, to, to be a son meant everything in terms of authority, social standing, everything. And so now he's saying male, female, Jew, Jew or Greek, whatever, you're all sons now. You all carry that authority. Every single one of you believe in Christ you carry the status of, of the highest uh, social standing uh, uh, 
that, that we, we can wrap your mind around. Son of God. You know, you are now sons of God. Make sense? You get that real, I'll get it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see how much time we got. Just a little bit left. So we've talked about Jesus, our Lord. Uh, we've talked about Jesus, Son of God. One more. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, his only son, our Lord. Save the best for last here. Uh, I want to point you first to the third commandment. Does anyone remember the third commandment off the top of their head? You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. All right. You got it. You knew it. When we talk about names, uh, we put a lot of stock into names because they're not, it's not just an innocuous label. That we, just, we just went through the, the painful exercise of uh, naming this new puppy that we got. Oh, man. You would think that the world depended upon it, that this name. Uh, we, I wanted to call the dog Chewbacca, but I think it didn't get accepted. Uh, but again, the reason we put so much stock into the dog's name, or a person's name more specifically, because really at the end of the day, what we named the dog, Maisie is what, what, uh, what we came up with, uh, if, if names didn't carry significance, we would just label them child A, B, C, and D, which might be a lot easier, right? Uh, but how long do we spend thinking about names? Does anyone know what the most popular baby name was last year? Any guesses? Huh? Ava? Uh, good question. United States. We'll say United States. Moonbeam. Moonbeam. That was second. Taylor Swift, yeah. I'll just take you out of your suspense. Olivia, Olivia. Uh, This was the most popular baby name in 2023 for the third year in a row. Uh, For the boys, that name was Noah. Noah was the most popular name. Uh, Running behind that was Liam, who held the title for a few years. Now Noah finally got the top spot. But Olivia, it's a nice name, isn't it? You like the name Olivia? Uh, if it's okay, <laughs> if you are at a place in life, <laughs> my apologies, Olivia. There's not an Olivia in here. I'm just kidding. But what if there was? Okay, but but the name Olivia, it's nice. And, and if you were at a place where someone in your life was going to name their their baby girl Olivia, I would think Olivia would be a nice name to consider, uh, don't you think? I think so overall, right? Uh, would you object to it and say, okay, I, I can live with Olivia? Now, if you're let's say you're naming your daughter Olivia. Uh, and then your, your husband says, okay, oh, yeah, Olivia, that was the name of my ex-girlfriend. Where does the name Olivia fall on the scale now? Pretty much at the bottom. You know, anything but Olivia, I think you'd cons- consider. Because, again, names are not innocuous. They mean something. They carry. They communicate something. They tell us. Uh, uh, they even speak to our very identity. Okay, now Jesus' last name is not Christ. Okay, that may come as a surprise to you. But we do not call Jesus the Christ because it's part of his name. What we're saying when we call Jesus the Christ, or when we say Jesus Christ, is quite simply we're calling him God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ we're talking about that he is the Lord. Okay? Um, Think about these titles. Uh, we, We repent to him, not by invitation, but by obligation. We read in Acts 17 how Paul was telling the Athenians, and again, this is what he told them in, in 17, 29 to 31. Let me finish the verse this time, one more time. No. Uh, no, falling behind here. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, image formed by the imagination of man. The times of ignorance overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you see what that verse is telling us? is not just that God gave Jesus to be the judge, but he gave Jesus Christ. He gave us the Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you know when we say Jesus Christ, again, not a name, but it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, that Jesus is the anointed one. Not only do we have a judge, we have the anointed one. Uh, and it's the same word that the Hebrew word Messiah is used. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the anointed one. Okay, but what does that mean? What does Messiah mean or the anointed one? What does that mean? All through the Old Testament, there were hundreds of prophetic passages in the Old Testament that refer to the coming Messiah who would deliver his people. Now, ancient Israel thought the Messiah or their deliverer would be a, a military leader, but the New Testament revealed something else. The New Testament revealed a deliverer, yes, but a deliverer you and I needed much more than a military deliverer, right? So this is what Jesus Christ means, what Messiah means. It means deliverer. I believe in Jesus, our deliverer. Again, which on the heels of, of being said that there's a judge appointed to, to judge the world, that's scary. But also, guess, guess what you've got? You've got a deliverer a deliverer that will deliver you from the very judgment that, that he just spoke of, okay? From sin and death. Paul was telling the Athenians, repent because there's a judge who's coming to judge your every careless act and word. The Father has appointed this judge in Jesus Christ, but he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, okay? Why does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead give us assurance? Because again, if Jesus is raised from the dead, what does that mean? You will be raised from the dead, and you will be raised from the dead, and you'll be raised from the dead. Though, though he passes out judgment, he passes out deliverance too, okay? Remember when we talked a couple weeks ago about God the Father uh, and God the Almighty, okay? That those were almost like an oxymoron term, you know, God the Father, God the Almighty. Father, caring, Almighty, God, right? This is the manifestation of that. We have Jesus Christ the judge and Jesus Christ the deliverer. We have Jesus, the Son of, of, of God, our Lord, whom we owe everything, every fiber of our being to. And that's not enough. That's not nearly enough. But we also have belief in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, who stands between us and the Father and gives us what is required to be declared righteous before him. Okay, he was raised from the dead. Okay, now I'll wrap it up with this. You know, why was Jesus raised from the dead? I once had someone ask me a long time ago, I wasn't too long ago, they said, okay, was, was the resurrection actually needed? If Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and he even declared it is finished, why was the resurrection necessary? Was the resurrection necessary? Or was it just a nice thing that happened after the cross? Why was the resurrection necessary? Why was the resurrection absolutely necessary? It shows he defeated sin and death. Mm -hmm. Almost there. You're almost there. One step closer. What does that mean, though? He defeated sin and death. He is risen. Uh, what, what are the... Someone fill in the, the, the blank here. The wages of sin is... For the wages of sin is death. Okay? So the wages of sin is death. Was, was Jesus... Huh? Life everlasting. Life everlasting. Okay, so if Jesus was sinless 
and the wages of sin is death. Do you see what this means? For the wages of sin is death. Jesus is dead. What did the Father say when he looked upon the righteous, sinless nature of Christ? He said, not guilty. Not guilty. And that is why the grave could not hold him down, because he was sinless. The Father looked at him and said, no, not guilty. And that necessarily raised him from the dead. Now, again, we're taught, we, we, our, our, our religion is a religion of uh, substitution, substitutionary atonement. Okay, so yes, he died for your sin. He died to pay for your sin by substitution. By the same manner, you are raised from the dead because of representation. Because he was sinless, because he represents you, because he stands in your place, you carry with yourself the status of Christ, who was sinless. And because he was raised from the dead, now fill in the blank. You are raised from the dead. That's why the resurrection is absolutely necessary because it proved, it verified, number one, that Jesus was sinless and that everything that he said was true because if there was one thing that he said that was not true, that's a sin and that's enough to keep him in the ground forever. But because he was sinless, it verified everything that he said and the last thing that he said was that he's standing in your place. He's standing there representing you and because of that, you will be resurrected. You will be raised from the dead. Paul calls it the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of our salvation, meaning that the first of many to come. We are the ones that benefit from his sinlessness and righteousness. That is what it means that Jesus Christ is our deliverer. He's our Messiah. That's what he saved us from, sin and death. Okay. Uh, any, 1129, not bad. Uh, any thoughts or questions? You have one minute. To, I'm just kidding. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah, Lucy, speak into the mic. It just made me think of, um, in Revelation, how it talks about at the throne, who's worthy to open the scroll, and it's not some mighty God that, you know, like the Jews were expecting, it's a lamb that was slain that's bloody, and, you know, that there's a humbleness to our walk. Humility, man, it's the key. It's the key to Christianity. It's the secret sauce, I like to say. Anyone else? Someone else? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, question. So when you're saying like he, he, died, he was raised from the dead, so then we can therefore be raised from the dead, is that the synonymous? Are you saying that same as going to heaven? Because you're, hell, you're, like, there's, you're going somewhere. But, okay. Absolutely, you're, you're going somewhere. And it's not just a destination. It's, it's, uh, it's being uh, in Christ united with the Father. You know, you, so you are with the Father. So in other words, it's not just a location, but it's a status to be united with the Father wherever he is. And he is someplace good. You know, he is in heaven. Yeah. Uh -huh. Someone else? Great question, though. Someone else? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking about the verse um, Acts seventeen twenty nine that we went over. And could we add John 3, 8 to that, uh, to the, the issue of him commanding, of his commanding us to be saved because Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be saved. John 3, 8. Yep. You must be born again. And for those of you going through our small group Bible study right now, that's what we're looking at this week, uh, Nicodemus, that, that conversation with Nicodemus is, is fascinating. It's mind-blowing because there's so many things, there's so many points that he's, again, Nicodemus is asking him, you know, uh, clearly you're from God. Clearly, because of the things you do, we know you're from God. And it's almost like Jesus says, uh, yeah, I don't know where you're going with this, but let me go ahead and get down to brass tacks. Uh, you must be born again. You must be born again. And then Nicodemus somewhat crassly asks, 
Does a man enter back into his mother's womb? No, of course not. Nicodemus, you're a teacher. You know these things. You should know this. And he's making points, connection points, all the way back to Ezekiel 36 and others where it says, a new heart you must have. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born of the spiritual uh, birth, not just the physical birth. And it's, it's very fascinating. I love the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. John chapter 3. Anyone else? Yes, Molly. Did you announce that Tracy wanted me to text and tell you did you announce Oh, yeah. What, what date is it? Okay, February 10th. Mark your calendars. February 10th. This is, this is the day before the Super Bowl. We are going to have a Super Bowl party the day before. So we're going to have a bunch of soup. Super Bowl. Get it? Come on. So February 10th, mark your calendars. We'll send out uh, information on that. And uh, I think we're going to have it here at the church. Uh, unless someone wants to host. So that's a, uh, that's a, if you have a nice home that will host a bunch of people and soup, we'd love to uh, do that together. So with that, uh, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for these things. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, and thank you for the reality that he is uh, the Christ. He's our deliverer. He is the Son of God with all the authority in heaven and on earth, and that he's our Lord. Uh, what would we be without any of those things? Without one of those things, where would we be? We would be lost. And we thank you that he came to earth to save us because he loves us. Uh, what more is there to say? Uh, we thank you again. For, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all.